You know, that would actually be a, re it would be really hilarious to take a meters record, record all vocals over it, release it as a new record, and then just wait to get sued. Like, <laughs> it's, like it's like a publicity stunt. <laughs> Okay, hello and welcome to another episode of 1001 Album Complaints. Today we're doing something a little different, a little bonus episode for y'all. Notable snubs from Robert Dimery's book, 1001 Albums You Must Hear Before You Die. We've been looking at albums from this book, from this list, uh, one per week, talking shit, throwing some off the list, lauding some even higher by anointing them with our stamp. And we couldn't help but notice that there were some notable exceptions, some, some obvious missing pieces to this. So here we are today to, to throw some, some oversights back on the list and tell you, the listener, what you actually should be listening to. I have a feeling even this episode is going to be contentious and that we will complain plenty. And yet I am, I am excited. I am excited. How's everyone feeling today? Oh, I'm pumped. I cool. had I had a really serious constipation problem like a week ago, and I seriously have not been the same ever since. Okay, drink some coffee, man. Come on, dude. Go. We're past that. We're past welcome that. to forty. You're not even forty yet. Snort That's coffee grinds. <laughs> we have with us our usual cast of characters. <laughs> Keeping it tight for this episode, Rob. In in the booth in the booth today we have uh, Mr. Tom. Tom, introduce yourself. Hey, what's up? I'm Tom. I am not currently constipated. Everything is flowing fine. We also have Alan. I'm Alan. I uh, have a very regular schedule: 9 a.m. sharp. After that, things get a little bit scary. We're gonna kick it over to Adam, the proud sponsor of Activia this week. Uh, <laughs> hey, I'm Adam, and I'm super excited to be here. <laughs> and last but not least, we have Phil, who already chimed in, but Phil, yeah, introduce yourself. I would just like to point out that I said I was previously constipated, and you asked everyone how they were doing, and they were all chiming in saying they were doing good. I was just trying to be authentic. Superman does good, Phil. You're doing well. <laughs> okay, let's get into it. Well, let's not, let's, not, let's not bury the lead here, boys. Let's start talking. So I'll go ahead and go first. One notable exception left off the list, Harry Belafonte's Calypso. So I suppose it's my job to, to sell you boys on, on why this album belongs on the list. Uh, first, a little bit of background. Harry Belafonte, he's a Jamaican-American singer. He's still alive today. This record was released way back in that decade called The 50s. And basically, he took a traditional Jamaican folk song and sold a million records. In fact, Calypso was the first LP record to sell one million copies. No I, way. I know. Well, wow. this is according wow. to my deep Wikipedia research, but yes, that's apparently a, so. That's pretty crazy. I also thought another, another interesting thing of him, he was, uh, he was an early and avid supporter of civil rights. He was a close uh, supporter and confidant of MLK during his life, and you know, Additionally, another fun fact about Harry Belafonte, first time he was ever on stage, his backing band was Charlie Parker's band, which included Miles Davis. Yeah. 
Wow. So for All those right. who don't know, you probably do know Harry Belafonte from perhaps his most famous, at least in our generation, exposure to the mass media, which is his songs were all across Tim Burton's film Beetlejuice. So great, fun movie, original movie. If you haven't watched that lately, check that out. That's when Harry Belafonte first came on my radar. And there's great use of his songs in that movie. A lot of fun, particularly the song Deo. So I think everyone more or less knows that song. Calypso, what it really did, in my opinion, not just my opinion, it took, it introduced an entirely new musical genre to America or to the Western world. He took the, some of the music from the Caribbean, from his parents who were both Jamaican born, he was born in New York, and he sort of adapted it for the Western market, took some old folk songs, kind of reworked them wrote a bunch of new songs that I think are great, and thus introduced this whole new style of music into American culture. So that's what I think is important about it. It might as well be an ad for Caribbean tourism. It's light, it's airy, the production is terrific, and the songwriting and singing are also excellent. I kind of can't believe Harry Belafonte is not on this list at all. Sort of shocking to me. He has a large body of work. I think a lot of it is worth listening to. But this is sort of, in my opinion, the quintessential Harry Belafonte record. It's a great dinner party record. A lot of great ambiance. What did you guys think from the two songs we played? And then I'll segue into listening to those songs. The two songs we picked, I should mention, are I Do Adore Her and Jamaica Farewell. Two great songs from the record. Quick thoughts on the record from you all. Uh, I really like this record. I, I, I own this record. Um, something that my wife loves, my kids love. It's high energy. Um, you know, there's a lot of movement to it, something you can dance to. Um, yeah, I was a little blown away when I, when I realized that it was not on the list. Uh, when you first mentioned it, I was like, you must be making a mistake. Clearly, this must be on the list. Um, not only are the songs beautiful and are they, um, you know, sincere sounding, but just Harry Belafonte, stand-up guy in general. I, was, I read a, a series of books about, like, it's called America During the King Years, and it's basically just a study of America from the time Martin Luther King was born until the time he was assassinated. And, like, Harry Belafonte pops up so much in that, just, like, literally, like, paying the bail for people who were, like, freedom riders going to jail in the South and, like, very stand-up guy. Um, and, yeah, his music is fantastic. He's a fantastic guy. Kind of can't believe it's not on the list. I thought it was great. Adam, what'd you think? A lot of fun. I uh, I really only knew the Harry Belafonte songs from uh, Beetlejuice, probably. Uh, Rob, I don't know if either one of these was on the Beetlejuice album. No, yeah, I went I went a slightly different direction. I wanted to skip over Deo. I think I think Beetlejuice has Deo and Man Smart, Woman Smarter, which are also both on Calypso. The record There's Jump in the Line, I believe, as well. Is that Jump in the Line is actually not on this one, but that was on the Beetlejuice soundtrack. Okay, yeah. But yeah, yeah. I, w- I wanted to divert a little bit and showcase a little bit more of the songwriting that I think is on mm-hmm. display here, some of the harmonies and kind of the style of production, which I do think is relatively consistent throughout. Maybe this is actually a good opportunity to just play a few seconds of one of the songs I chose. I do adore her. So we'll drop that in. 
here. When shadows fall and stars appear, the pain I feel I cannot bear. If I could relive that fateful day, I would not turn my love away. I'd reveal how I do adore her, hang my heart on my sleeve just for her. All my love throughout life assure her, if this moment I could amour her. I'd reveal how I do adore her, hang my heart on my sleeve just for her. All my love throughout life assure her, if this moment I I thought the guitar work was nice. The production was very simple. It had a, it had a 50s sound, but it wasn't that 50s and the, the the late 50s wall of sound, right, which which was a nice departure for that decade. Um yeah, all around there were great tunes. I I I like the the lyrics um if this moment I could amour her, that's great. And uh, yeah, I just, I, I smiled the whole time listening to these two tracks. Alan. Yeah, I mean, I'll be a broken record here and say the same thing. I was sort of surprised that this wasn't on here. I, I think anytime you are, you know, bringing a genre to the masses in this way or, or sort of being that like pioneer of, of a style of music, um, I think that alone should at least get you some some uh, consideration for it. Um, but yeah, I could listen to this stuff all day. Honestly, it's, you know, I'm sure it gets a little bit repetitive, um, in the ways that I have some complaints about like reggae music or other Island music, but super laid back. Um, just really enjoyable. I, I probably listened to this like, like eight times in the last week, honestly. Um, just really cool. I loved how, um, someone mentioned production values earlier. I like that they put the harmonies, they were much more forward in the mix. than I think a lot of what you hear often where usually like the primary vocal is dominant and you can sort of, you have to like key in on that secondary harmony, but I think they put those harmonies right up front. At least that's what, what I was picking up. Um, but yeah, just total classic, very iconic. Um, probably, I bet you, if you asked Robert Dimery, if, uh, you know, should you have put this on? He'd probably say, yeah, I, I may have like, that may have been a screw up on my part. Well, I, I phoned in about 40% of these, so yeah. <laughs> one of many oversights. <laughs> 1,002 uh, albums you have to hear before you die. I think the production, one of the things it's trying to go for, it's it's purposely underproduced and trying. I noticed this in some Hawaiian music and, and things like that are trying to have that island vibe is it feels a little bit like you could be listening to it outside on a beach around a campfire with just a couple people. It just, it doesn't feel overly compressed or produced. It feels very present and, and light and airy. And I, and I think that's a very specific uh, conscious choice. I, I picked these two songs, I should say too, because I think they're a nice showcase for Harry Belafonte's voice. Specifically, I find his voice very mellifluous and sonorous and all the other nice things you can say about a person's voice and yeah we mentioned already the production is very sparse but it really gets the job done and showcases the harmonies and showcases the voice and showcases the songwriting phil what do you think i I actually was pretty surprised it made me realize how little i actually know harry belafonte's music like obviously we all know deo and the the beetlejuice songs but like it, it immediately like struck that chord like it felt incredibly familiar um, it felt incredibly, uh, it felt authentic. Like it felt authentically not 50s pop music. But I'd say above all, it made me realize like, oh, like I've heard this name my whole life. I've heard these na- this, this name on the radio associated not only with, you know, 
fa fabulous music, but civil rights work. And I really just don't know the catalog at all. Um, so that was sort of like my main takeaway. It's like, I should probably dig into this a little bit. You, you know, There's one, clearly something here. One thing that's a little interesting, and um, I didn't do a ton of research on this, but I'm like, Terry Belafonte kind of stopped performing like a long time ago. Like he's not the guy that's out there still doing shows and stuff like that. And I am pretty sure I have not verified this. So listeners, you can write in and tell me about how wrong I am if I am wrong. But I'm pretty sure that the last time that he performed live was on the Stephen Colbert show where Stephen Colbert was like interviewing uh, yeah. him about, I, I think like a book that he wrote, like an autobiography or something. And Stephen Colbert just starts singing Jamaica Farewell. And then uh, Harry Belafonte comes in on the harmony over the chorus. And it's, it's <laughs> awesome. It's really cool. Oh, wow. But it's like, right. I got to go look that up. Yeah. You, you, you can tell he's old. His voice is not the same. Um, but like, I'm pretty sure that's the last time that he had performed live. Like he sort of swore off performing live a while ago. We're going to drop that YouTube video in if we can find it. But that sounds like a great segue into listening to a little bit of Jamaica Farewell. And in addition to those harmonies, pay attention because I think there's really beautiful guitar work throughout this one. Sounds of laughter everywhere and the dancing girls swing to and fro. I must declare my heart is there though I've been from Maine to Mexico. But I'm sad to say I'm on my way. Won't be back for many a day. My heart is down, my head is turning around. I had to leave a little girl in Kingston town. Belafonte has one of those voices that would age like Johnny Cash's, where there's a beauty in the frailty of it. Like, I, I, again, I haven't yet heard that YouTube clip, but I'm looking forward to going back and, and hearing that. And I'm sure it's as beautiful as he was in this prime. It's not. You can tell he's smoked for a very long time, and his voice is not <laughs> what it used to be. If he smoked, well, he's got to be, what, 90 at this point? I mean, if he was... He's old. He's very he was old. recording this stuff in the 50s. Jeez. I think this is from... I think that clip is from like 15 years ago, maybe more. Yeah. One of the things that made me laugh though, is listening to these lyrics of Jamaica farewell a little more closely and realizing it was just an Island version of Led Zeppelin's. I ain't joking woman. I got to ramble. <laughs> Everybody's got to ramble, man. It's Everybody's like, look, I know we slept together, but I'm out of here. I'm a sailor. I'm getting back on the ship and it's a bummer. <laughs> let's be honest. But but I have an excuse. I'm a sailor. We were yeah. born this I way. mean, I've been from Maine to Mexico. Come on, you know. <laughs> Great. Well, any other thoughts on Calypso? Yeah, I think it was a major oversight. Really jumped out to me. I love playing this in the background of, of you know, cooking or, or having friends over for dinner because it's a very consistent kind of nice ambiance setting record. And I own it on vinyl as well. I'll definitely be listening to it again. Will you all be listening to it again based on this little exploration? 100%, no doubt about it. Adam. Yeah, I want my kids to hear this. Actually, after me hearing these two tunes, I'm definitely going to be spinning this. Yeah, same. I actually put it in my notes, and I look forward to kind of listening to this again. So, yeah. Yeah, that's a big yes for me. Uh, probably not just this album, but Belafonte's catalog in general. The sort of exposed that is a... Definitely a, just like a, a blinder there for me. 
Terrific, terrific. Well, I'm glad that we discussed it. Now I think we're going to move right along to the next album recommendation. Mr. Tom? So my choice for this uh, is Weird Al Yankovic's Dare to be Stupid. I I chose this album for a couple of reasons. The first reason is I think it's a fantastic album, and I I really do think that despite it clearly being a joke album, uh, there's really good musicianship on it and the, the fidelity that they bring to these covers of these these parody songs that they're doing like the music is really good and you can tell that that's they're like a music forward project um one of the reasons that i say they also is that weird Yankovic has had the same band for his entire career same drummer same bass player same guitar no player. way oh yeah same band and for his entire career 30 years at this point yeah maybe 40 yeah, I mean, their first album was like, um, yeah, like, I think like 70, like 80. I think it might have been 80 because he wow. put out that. So he put out an album that had um, mostly, it's just called Weird Al Yankovic, right? Um, that album did not have the guitar player on it because there's really no guitar on it. And then they put out Weird Al Yankovic in 3D. And that's the one that had Eat It on it. And he's like, you know, famous for all that stuff. But that, basically from the time that album came out until now, they've had the same exact band. I think that's really cool, number one. That is cool. Wait, wait, related personnel question, because I know I don't know if he plays on the records or not, but I noticed they were, these records were produced by one Rick Derringer, who I associate strongly with Adam. Yes. yes. He produced part a of the Edgar Winter group. Of Weird, Al Al- uh, Weird Al albums. Wow. Yeah. I, I had no idea. And I love Rick Derringer. Yes. All right. <laughs> throw, throw more fuel into that Rick Derringer so, fire. Another part of the reason why I picked this is I, I have a lot of nostalgia associated with this album. There is Weird Al does like a hooked on polka thing at the end of every album where he just goes through a bunch of songs at the time. And that was my introduction to so many songs that I'd never heard before. Um, like, you know, probably the first time that I heard, uh, you know, just like, I'm an ordinary guy burning down the house. Like that's from the in 3D one. But like that's the first time I ever heard burning down the house as a, as a kid. Um, so I think it's a really good way to especially get kids to appreciate better music. But like. There, there were some great parody songs on here, like famously Like a Surgeon, which was the only song ever that he didn't actually come up with the topic for. Apparently, the story goes that Madonna mentioned to a friend, like, I wonder how long it's going to be until Weird Al makes Like a Virgin into Like a Surgeon. And like that person happened to be friends with Weird Al, Weird Al and it got back to him. And he, that's the only time he did not accepted. come up with the, with the concept <laughs> for himself. But like, so yeah, Like a Surgeon, I Want a New Duck, fantastic song. Um <laughs> <laughs> Girls just want to have lunch. Another fantastic song. That's really great. But I I picked this one because I think that the Weird Al original songs on here are really good. And so I picked a selection of two original songs by Weird Al to put on here. And we're gonna start off with one of my is like literally one of my favorite songs of all time. And I know that people are gonna have differing opinions on it, but it is one more minute. You found a brand new lover You decided that I'm not your kind So I pulled your name out of my Rolodex And I tore all your pictures in two And I burned down the malt shop where Right. That's right. You 
he actually had broken up with his girlfriend um, at the time and wanted to do like an Elvis Presley style doo-wop song about getting dumped and how he felt about it. And uh, I love this song. It's my go-to karaoke song. I think it's fantastic. Adam, what'd you think? <laughs> so I'm a huge Weird Al fan as well. Uh, I know the albums Polka Party, Off the Deep End, and Alapalooza really well. I listen to those from the ages of like 9 to 14 or something. And Tom, same with you. Those medleys that he would do introduced me to a whole lot of other stuff that I wasn't hip to. Like, you know, as a 13-year-old and a 12-year-old, like, who were the Red Hot Chili Peppers, you know? So I, I got into it that way. Uh, this tune is hilarious, uh, well-produced, uh, great melodies. Um, there's something about Weird Al songs that when you listen to one you haven't heard before, it's the anticipation of like the lines that you know are going to come. And in, in this one, thinking about all of the things he'd rather do. So it's like you hear the first one, you know, he burned down the malt shop and you're like, oh, great, here we go. And you're just anticipating like the next crazy thing he's going to say. Um, I love this tune as well, man. Alan, what'd you think about this? Uh, I, look, I could not really get down with this. I'm not going to lie. I do think Weird Al, if, if we are discussing uh, where someone fits in the canon, does he belong on the list? You know, that could be a separate conversation. Potentially, I could not really listen to this with any kind of uh, seriousness, which I know is not the intention. Um, the It kind of reminded me of that Ween album where they do those like fake country songs. That if, is a fantastic album, by the way. Yeah, it's another favorite of Tom's for sure. <laughs> it's great. It's I love good. That well, so, but it, I do think it... I see a theme. <laughs> it has a lot of the same concepts where it's there is high musicianship that it's very well produced it's if you strip away the like humor of it or the, the the joke aspects of it it's 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 not bad i just i think weird al especially in in one more minute the, it he there's this like put on voice i don't know if that's like the right term but when you're trying to do that that it just i couldn't i couldn't like suspend my disbelief enough i'm actually surprised they even have karaoke like versions of this available in the, in the kit of other karaoke <laughs> songs. Um, yeah, just, I, I thought, I mean, great musicianship, obviously, especially if he's had the same, you know, backing band for, for that long. Um, but yeah, I, it, I don't know if we're discussing the other song too, but did you, did you not? I, I think that it's like my favorite low key masturbation joke of all time where he says, I'm stranded all alone at the gas station of love and I have to use the self-service pumps. <laughs> it's like, it's like a clean, how did I not, perfect how masturbation did I not hear joke, that? Right? Oh, that is great. Tom, what would you say is the most high key masturbation joke? That, that's your favorite low key <laughs> masturbation joke. What's your favorite overt masturbation? Joke? Your overt. Oh, my, well, it's not even a joke. It's just the, it's just the line in uh i guess captain jack by billy joel where it's like it's friday <laughs> oh, yeah. night she goes on a date you stay at home and masturbate yeah. like i thought you were gonna I, say i was all by myself no one was looking <laughs> great answer tom that's that's a great answer right. Fair <laughs> enough. Phil, phil what'd you think about this song okay so i i had a mixed i had a mixed experience with the weird al altogether i can't i'll speak to both of the songs in general i think he nails the elvis vibe um, there was a curiosity about it, you know? I also, the, the note I made is, Tom, have you ever considered that you've actually really sort of developed your singing voice around Weird Al's voice? Am I the only one that heard Tom Monahan singing these songs? Can we, can we roll, can we roll one of these right now? <laughs> yeah, let's roll. I, I could, I could kind of see what you're saying, Phil. Yeah, definitely. 
is alive. I buy a dozen cars when I'm in the mood. I hire somebody to chew my food. I'm an up and three mobile dude. This is alive. I think that I have developed my songwriting style almost exclusively around Weird Al because the only songs that I can write are about like Star Wars, Star Trek, and Ghostbusters <laughs> and like Arby's and weird things. Like I can't write a deeply personal song ever, but I can write a weird song about some other topic that's like clever but non-serious. So let's make sure we don't cut that. That should be the perfect segue back from the song, right? Because, I, yeah, Tom, this is, this is totally in your wheelhouse. This is totally you. It doesn't surprise me that you suggested this at all. So I sort of have, like, mixed feelings on this. I feel like I should dig in more. I feel like you've highlighted Weird Al's role as, like, the sort of court jester of rock and roll. Like, and it should be honored. But I can't honestly say I would ever turn this on for enjoyment. All right, fair well, enough. Well, the Rob. type of enjoyment I'm accustomed to when it comes to pursuing music. Look, we only have a certain amount of uh, hours in our lives, and we have to spend them judiciously, is what Phil's trying yeah, to say. Yeah. Listen to some uh, you know, albums. I can honestly say I was dreading this moment a little bit all week, <laughs> which is to say, yeah, I'm in the Phil and Allen camp a bit more. I agree with everything that was said previously he clearly is a music forward person and he's produced thorough you know he's produced he's not lazy material by any stretch and i am aware of his how he fits in the canon Uh, particularly i like that you guys talked about him as a gateway drug musician you know into other things i have a lot of respect for musicians who who do that so if it was about me voting of whether or not you should acknowledge Weird Al and listen to the, him at all and understand why he's good in some philosophical way, I'd say yes, you should do that. <laughs> and I'm for that, philosophically speaking. Philosophically a, speaking, okay. On a practical level, though? But on a practical level, I don't really want to listen to this. My, I had my own weird <laughs> band time in my early years I, I think instead of weird al i was really into they might be giants and even maybe the weirder side of the beatles which is sort of where that led and crash test dummies so i get the urge that i think you guys are were also responding to but given that this did not latch on to me when i was 9 10 11 years old it doesn't really resonate with me now so I will I would just say this and we'll we'll leave it at this. We played a clip of uh this is the life earlier to, to you know demonstrate how apparently I sound like Weird Al, one of the greatest compliments I've ever been given. Thank you, Phil. Um, <laughs> but like um you know, I, I'm borrowing my sister's two thousand and seven Toyota Corolla for the summer, and so I don't have anything. I can't like hook up my uh, my phone to the car, so there's a couple of CDs in the car, and one of them is Weird Al's Dare to Be Stupid. Yes. I've listened to it like eight times. I still love it. I still love That's it. It's really awesome. good. It's Can fantastic. Whose copy of is it her copy or is it yours from copy. like twenty yeah, years ago? No, no, it's oh, her so copy. It's a, it's a I had, family I, affair, though. I had this on <laughs> tape the back in the day. Copy. I had this on cassette tape, <laughs> not on CD. So. Why are the weirdos? He's really obsessed with the fifties. Both of these songs have a fifties vibe, and I. Oh, another weirdo I liked when I was a kid and I don't like so much anymore is Frank Zappa. And Frank Zappa had a weird 50s obsession, too. Like, is there you something know about... You talked about who loved the 50s? Who's a total weirdo? 
is Donald Fagan. Yeah, you know Donald what it weirdo. is? I think that it's when uh, when you are that age and you don't have any friends that are your age and you just hang out with your parents. And so like you ingest all of their <laughs> like sort of pop culture stuff because you don't have any friends that are your age. Because like, I mean, that's all that the thing they talked about with Weird Al is like, his he had like an extraordinarily like overbearing mother, very loving but like super protective. So he spent like most of his time like hanging out with his mom and his dad, and he didn't have any friends. And it wasn't until he went to college that he kind of like started making friends. But he was also obscenely weird, and people were just like, "Who the hell is this guy?" But he was just like, "I've been telling my mom's been telling me I'm great my entire life, and I really ingested that, and I I think I'm fantastic, and what I'm doing is cool, and you guys will all realize it someday." And so like, weird. Al was not right. a self ascribed moniker. It sounds like. <laughs> Uh, no, I don't. I th- I'm pretty sure he actually got that in college where kids were there's that, that, that weird guy. It's that weird guy, Al. So he went by Weird Al. Based on that description, I feel like I do have a lot in common with him, but <laughs> I, I was wondering, I'm sure it's an age thing about the 50s, but I thought there was something to maybe, maybe I'm over, maybe I'm going too deep on this, where there's a wholesomeness at the top layer of the 50s, but there's like a Lovecraftian horror underneath of it that they're looking to explore you know all right so i feel like i'm at show and tell today i brought who is your daddy and what does he do (laughs) this is also a cd that my sister originally got from Whatever it was where you would buy 10 CDs for a penny, but then you had to promise to buy 20 over the course of it. Thank you, Columbia House. (laughs) You still owe them money. So there is a bit of nostalgia on this album as well, but I feel like as as an adult, I can evaluate it as uh, objectively as possible. So we're doing an Indigo Girls record here. So a little bit of background on Indigo Girls. They're considered folk rock. Uh, They met in grade school. Uh, and then they started playing out together. They released, uh, so that the members are Amy Ray and Emmy Sailors. Uh, 1987, they released a self-produced album. Uh, they were both 23 years old. So flash forward five years, we have Swamp Ophelia. So this was released in 1994, uh, produced by a gentleman named Peter Collins, who has produced everyone from Bon Jovi to Rush to Air Supply. Uh, just a whole bunch of, 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 of great acts. The Indigo Girls, while they are pop rock, I feel like this album is a bit of, and I'm sorry, not pop rock. I mean, you keep describing uh, rock. rock to them, which I don't quite right. understand that part. But okay. <laughs> That's a good point. All right, we'll just call it folk for now. I think there's a couple tracks on the album which you could classify as folk rock. Uh, I didn't select those uh, for our, our listening enjoyment here. Um, but yeah, basically they 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 put together a slamming studio band for this album. Uh, Tony Levin, who you may know from the really? Liquid Tension Experiment. Yeah, Tony Levin played bass on this album. There was a uh, there was uh, one Chuck, actually made a note coming out of a break of one of those songs. There was like a nice little bass run, and I and I was just like, that was cool. Mm-hmm. I don't know who that is, but now he was Tony <laughs> Levin is uh, checks out. Chuck Lievel uh, played piano, who uh, was on the album uh, Allman Brothers' first three albums in the 70s. Um, drums were a guy named Jerry Murata, who played with Peter Gabriel on seven of his studio albums. So, I mean, just a, a, a great cast of musicians here. I chose this because, and I chose these two songs because I feel like this album and these songs are kind of a masterclass in 
harmony, in stacking vocals, in the way you arrange vocal lines that weave in and out of each other, but they're not distracting. That, in addition to the production, again, I feel like it's a masterclass on how to mic up analog instruments. Uh, with headphones turned up loud, both of these tunes are just absolutely fantastic. Uh, so let's uh, give a quick listen to Language or the Kiss. I said to So I, in first listening to this song, I, I will admit my, the first like 30 seconds, 45 seconds, I was kind of ready to bail. It just wasn't grabbing me at all. Um, I, I do think I also was maybe a little bit biased from, this kind of came out when I was in like high school-ish and was very much in my like alternative rock Y100 and just thought this was sort of a little too folky for me, like at the time. So I was sort of fighting through some of that in listening to this. However, um, oh, and I did, I did feel the song was a little bit long for my taste, but it really was an acquired taste. And by the time I got to the end of the song, I was like, dude, this is the truth, man. Like this is everything you kind of mentioned about the vocal harmonies and not just the, the harmonies themselves, but the, the arrangements, the way I, I feel like they really had a lot of like interesting changes there were a lot of unexpected harmonies. Like I, I don't, I'm not as schooled in like what a lot of the intervals are in, in terms of harmony, but I just found them to be really interesting. And I, I was, was sort of like looking for what's next, you know, what's coming around the bend, um, for this song. I really liked the, uh, acoustic guitar solo. I feel like you don't really get many of those in, uh, in music. So, uh, yeah, I, uh, definitely an acquired taste song grew on me over time, but, um, I was definitely bought in by, by the end. Um, what'd you think, Phil? Yeah, this was actually an interesting one for me, Adam, because like, this was definitely like a bit of a trip down memory lane. I found myself sort of cruising through the entire Indigo Girls catalog. You definitely hard sold me on these gals in the seventh or eighth grade. Uh, <laughs> you know, so, so to that end, I thought it was a little easier for me to, you know, sort of like get over, you know, like Alan's talking about the long intro or sort of just the unfamiliarity when it doesn't snag you instantly. Yeah, I mean, everything you said. You highlighted about the vocal production, Adam, in a very like Crosby, Stills, Nash, Young way. They have this quality where they, they feel like they're singing very independent lines that don't need to line up and stack. It's like always, right? Like they're very mm -hmm. comfortable suspending a chord and you know just like having a different cadence to, to each melody right the the cadence that they line up where the words are never really stepping on each yep. other they're kind of cruising over where you can distinctly hear the two lines they also i, I think do a pretty fantastic job of um 
they do a really fantastic job of sort of highlighting lyrics with like a harmonic payoff, right? Um, just like it'll sort of build up to like a harmony that you're sort of always want, but never, you know, all that said, this sent me more down like just like the greatest hits path. Like I'm definitely more familiar, like closer to fine, Galileo, least complicated. Like sure. those were the songs that I sort of knew. So which, which actually one of those songs is on this record, right? Yeah, it's least complicated, right? Least complicated yeah, is on this record. That was their radio hit. Yeah. Right? The one yeah. they played on Letterman in 94. Gotcha. And, and Closer to Fine was like the unreleased one, right? That was like the prior album. The prior yeah, album. Gotcha. 89. Crazy. Yeah. Wait, was that, so was that not a hit then? Or that, because that That's is what the I was song just I knew ask, them right? for. That 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 come around later, like meaning years after it was released or something like that. Some kind of retrospective hit. If, if you would just yeah, if you'd asked me on the street a week ago what was the Indigo Girls' most popular song, I would have said "Closer to Fine." I would have said "Shame and, on and You." I, th- I think it still is. <laughs> How dare you not know the full catalog, you monster? <laughs> okay. So I don't I don't know if I can give you a straight answer on this album, but I feel like I I could definitely go down the. Go down the Indigo Girls wormhole. Uh, although here's what I will say: if I've got to pick one, Indigo Girls or Harry Belafonte, I'm going with Rob's Harry Belafonte. All right, <laughs> and that's the way it works. Unfortunately, you're only allowed to listen to one. Is this like tor- <laughs> tournament <laughs> style here? <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Eliminated album deathmatch. Come on, <laughs> right. Rob. What'd you think? Oh yeah, it's like we're all the same person, right? This for me. <laughs> I'm about to say some similar things. No, these women definitely have great sense of harmony. It's un, you know unexpected intervals, like everyone said, and just beautiful singing in general. Definitely noticed everything that was mentioned about the harmonies and, the, and specifically the melodic lines that were intersecting but soaring together. I noticed the acoustic guitar solo, which had a lot of great volume dynamics, which just felt fresh and new. You know, that said, the Indigo Girls to me were always something I avoided a little bit because it was my younger sister's music. I think that probably biased me quite a bit. She was really, really into them. And so I just sort of stayed away. This intrigues me enough to want to listen to a little bit more, but I wasn't in love with this song. I was groaning pretty hard at the alphabet of feeling line. (laughs) Yeah, there there are a couple corny lines in there, but they're also... Uh, some some pretty slamming ones in there as well. Well, I'll, I'll bring it back though because then she said alphabet of feeling, and I was like, oh gosh. And then <laughs> she said, and then she kind of tied it up later with grammar of my fear, and I was like, well, okay, at least the metaphors are like internally consistent. I see so what's going this, on here. The, the song is about a musician, so a person who writes lyrics. That's sure. the language, and they they're torn between staying at home for the love of the kiss, right, versus going out on tour. And there, there's a great line in there about. Um, all they want to do is reap the praise of strangers, which is hilarious as a front man, you know, or a musician, that's what you do. Um, and then they say, all I've sown was a song. Maybe I was wrong. It's very uh, unbearable lightness of being Rob. I think you gave me. Oh yeah. It's one of my favorites, Phil. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm, I'm intrigued. I could tell they have a literary bent to them and I, I wouldn't be opposed to listening to more, but I, I definitely like the other song he chose a bit better personally. Cool. Uh, that's a great, a great transition. So song number two I chose is called The Woods Song. Uh, let's spin that up real quick. I'm a magician And I'll see you in the boat in two by twos Only the heart that we have for a tool we could use And the very cold 
those quarters are hard to get used to. Love weighs the hull down with its weight, but the wood is tired and the wood is old, and we'll make it fine if the weather holds. But if the weather holds, we'll have missed the point. I think. Everything about it, it probably references the, the first song, too. Great production, great guitar work. The thing that stuck out to me is possibly one of my favorite key changes of all time is in the third verse of this song. They do a transition uh, from a G to an A for the third verse and then transition back to the key of G for the chorus. And it's just so beautiful. And uh, that was one of the major reasons I put, I put this on here. So. You know, Adam, I would say that um, they are definitely beautiful. Like, that is their aesthetic. Their aesthetic is beauty. Their aesthetic is um, longing. Um, and uh, they, you know, we, t- we talked a little bit about the, the harmony style. And I, I mean, you can't talk about Indigo Girls without talking about harmony. That's like their whole shtick. Um, the thing that they do that's really great is like having lines where they'll harmonize below and then they'll jump up to harmonize above and it kind of changes the center of gravity of the melody and it really good job of doing that um i'm familiar with indigo girls i've listened to this album before um <clears throat> i would say that the songs that you picked are representative of the album so like if you listen to these two songs and you weren't like i must hear more like you're not going to get a lot of difference when you listen to the rest of the album. It's it is very much this. They do that very well. Um, you referenced the thing that they do particularly well, which is the, um, and it's actually something I complained about last week with the zombies, um, where you have the two different melody lines all saying words, and they just they had them mashed up, and you couldn't tell because they were running over each other. They have so much space in their melodies and in their lyrics that they fit in between the spaces. They fit together very well. Um, they do that very, very perfectly. Um, I did listen to the rest of this album and then a couple of uh, stuff off of, uh, I think the album is called Closer to Fine, um, uh, that their first album uh, after listening to this. And yeah, it was great. Trip down memory lane. Am I going to listen to it again tomorrow? No. But will I listen to it again before the year is out? Absolutely. I don't even know who's going to talk after me. Is there somebody who's like, are we done yeah, talking there, about I mean, this? Or, you know, you know? Yeah, I feel like we, we don't need to analyze this song because it's probably the same-ish as the first song, right? I really just wanted to get that key change. That was point. my selfish motivation. No, no worries. I think I actually know what key change you're talking about. Like, and I didn't identify it when I listened to it as a key change, but it felt like something was happening that was that was not just a rote like hey it's key change time man in the mirror style where like you just let's go right up. you pause and then you jump how dare you <laughs> <laughs> come on that's how you know it's tasteful <laughs> right i would listen to it again cool. i don't know man in the mirror i agree because <laughs> <laughs> i haven't listened I think to that i'm enough. ready for an indig I'm 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 ready for an Indigo Girls Greatest Hits maybe to wait to wait. Yeah, into that's, a gr- that's a great that's a great call. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I could I could do that. I could definitely listen to an Indigo Girls Greatest Hits on a long drive, no questions asked. Yeah, yeah, I could see that. All right, Alan, what are you bringing to the table here, buddy? Good question. No, <laughs> <laughs> I didn't mean generally. I think we all know the answer to that. 
fumbling through the uh, CD stack in the background. Oh, in my Columbia house, uh, collections letters, uh, situated back here. No. Um, so my, my pick was the meters look a pie pie. Um, the meters. So this was a group that, um, I, I think m- many, a lot of people kind of consider them as, as like the original kind of funk band and, you know, not necessarily like the, the bombastic like horns and super long, like gaudy, you know, funk, but the kind of old school, you know, new Orleans style, like organ funk. I think they were kind of in, in that kind of tier as like, you know, Jimmy Smith and just that, that like really grindy organy minimal kind of stuff. Um, this was sort of to, to the, what we talked about with Harry Belafonte earlier, I actually went through the list multiple times looking for the meters. And even when I sent this in as like a submission, I was like, it's in there. Like there's no way they forgot the meters. Um, because I think they like set the table for a lot of the like instrumental groove music that still kind of persists today. Um, not necessarily a genre that I, will listen to often, but I think this, this specific album, this group probably has like influenced my musical kind of aesthetic and especially my bass playing probably, you know, George Porter Jr. Probably influenced me more than anybody as a bass player. Um, so, you know, the meters, uh, four piece, uh, funk instrumental outfit formed in 1965 in new Orleans. Um, they, they kind of started off as like a house band for a lot of different singers. Um, they actually, and I didn't know this until maybe a couple years ago, they were actually the backing band for Robert Palmer on the, uh, sneaking Sally through the alley album. And if you go back and listen to that, like that, those funk stylings that like fundamental, it, it, you know, is definitely there. Um, I think most people know the meters for the song Sissy Strut, which is, you know, kind of ubiquitous, you know, one of those songs that shows up in, um, actually shows up in the wire in the scene where Omar robs Marlowe Stanfield's poker game. Kind of fun fact. Spoiler <laughs> alert. Jeez, Omar robs everyone. It doesn't man. matter if you've never seen the wire. Oh, all right, all right. I believe the line is uh, money ain't got owners only spend. Yes. Gold, gold. Indeed. Love it. Yeah. So Sissy Strut responsible for that scene. Um, so not necessarily like a commercial success. Um, many of these guys are still playing actually. Um, Art Neville, I think passed away a couple years ago. They're, their organ player, obviously of the, uh, later on in the Neville brothers. Um, so not like huge commercial success, but I think they're, um, contribution to music in general and to, to that funk genre is, is pretty ironclad. Um, what I particularly like about the style is, um, you know, again, I think people associate funk with like tower of power, 12 part horn sections, super repetitive. We're going to play, you know, just hit you over the head with, with horns and vocals. Um, but these were really like, especially this album, this was their second studio album, all instrumentals. It almost sounds like these were just grooves that they sort of pushed record on and said, okay, after, you know, two or three minutes, we'll just fade this out. And that's the track. Um, so, uh, you know, and, and I say entirely instrumental because in the song, look a pie pie, they definitely get into some weird vocal jam. There's some hooting and hollering. Yeah. There's yeah. some, <laughs> some, some grunting. Definitely. Some, yeah. Definitely grunting. Yeah. Um, definitely. Very Hatfield. Very Hatfield. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
I was thinking either a better or worse version of like the fish vocal jams. However, you know, what your perspective Wherever is. Wherever you're at on those. It's <laughs> so actually, maybe I'm not selling this, so I'll, uh, I'll retract that, that <laughs> statement. <laughs> Let's not tie these to this. Those but, uh, but yeah, so Ed, this is a very, you know, inf- influential album for me personally. Um, and this band, I think really st- very syncopated. This was kind of the first band I heard that did, did the syncopated bass and drums, just sort of textbook style, really laid back drums, but a tight groove, simple melodies. Um, the the first track that that I kind of flagged on here was Look a Pie Pie. So let's kind of just give that a spin to, to get a feel there. uninitiated that just listen to that i have to say if you're wondering where everyone's impression of 70s porno music came from <laughs> i feel like we found the foundation of it i liked no i, I like the meters i'm not super familiar with the catalog so this was a nice opportunity to listen i, I listened to the songs i listened to the whole album a couple times I have mostly you I want to say I've mostly used the meters as backing music to or to play against on my instrument to try to oh, yeah. learn how to improvise or practice improvising or just have fun, which is a way of saying it's it's a little different than just actively walking around town and listening to it sort of actively. That, so that's fun. That's how fun works. That is how fun works. Thank <laughs> you for for breaking that down mechanically. Daniel, if we could actually point. if we could actually talk about that later, I'd I'd need some more detail on that. <laughs> Trying to tighten up my practice. It's important to tighten up your fun practice. Look, that's not why we listen to music, okay? It's not to enjoy it or, you know, to have pleasure. I liked it. It's groovy. It felt like a trip down memory lane for me. That's what folks were saying about the Indigo Girls, partially because, as you mentioned, Alan, there's a direct line between these guys and MMW and Soul Live and a lot of bands that I listened to in college. I think we all did. And so it reminded me more of that kind of music and that time. And it's good music to work to, I should say. I have a little bit of a challenge, especially when I'm doing something, you know, a lot of types of worker. I struggle with music with lyrics. And this this was great to turn on and get work done of varying sorts. So it was it was great for that. So, uh, yeah, I, I enjoyed my time with it. You know, Rob, I feel like what you're describing there is that uh, the music can't be too engaging or when you're trying to do a task, you will engage with the music instead of engaging with your task. And yeah, I, I found this to be not super engaging. Um, you know, I listen, I again, I I I don't have any doubt that these guys are foundational. I know they're foundational to a music genre. Um, it's maybe not my favorite music genre, but I think that it's um, you know, I like big funk, but this is also just like you said, like it goes into jazz, this sort of like improvisational jazz style stuff. The songs seemed a little unfinished to me um which is again it's not necessarily a critique um that's like a a huge negative but i I found it to be um like passing like i i I listened to it 
And I, I, when I was done listening to it, I felt no sense of emotional connection. I felt no change or anything like that. And I can emotionally connect to instrumental music. Like I certainly can do that, but this didn't bring that to the table. Um, I didn't dislike it, but if, uh, but I didn't find myself being like, I'm going to seek out a whole lot more of this and try to find, um, you know, get dive deep into the catalog and figure something out. Yeah, I think that's fair. I think once you get like a taste of it, it's sort of, you, you get it and you don't have to really like steep yourself in it to kind of understand what they're trying to do. I, I think that's totally fair. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is a band, the meters in general, Alan, that you, you turned me on to the meters years ago. Um, and I think, I think in different ways, Tom and Rob both hit my feelings right on the head. And that like, I think this is sort of ideal background music for lack of a better word and that like i think it's really enjoyable it sets a mood it's easy to sort of come and go but to tom's point it does sort of lack like a focal point which i think is what makes it great background music something cool to jam along to probably also a lot of fun to go see them because you're sort of like you could lose yourself in just like the overall rhythm and the band it isn't really about like a performer right it's about the band and something else about the meters I've always loved, and I am a little more familiar with the meters because of Alan. Um, I just always loved the way the music was mixed. Like, I feel like the drummer just plays with like significantly more touch than most drummers. Bass players just all around fabulous. A lot of like hard panning on the keyboards or the organ rather and the guitar. Yeah, the gu organs yeah. hard panned left. Yeah, yeah. and the guitar Badass. is always hard panned to the other side. Also, the guitar, I mean, without doing any research, I would bet a hundred dollars this guy plays a three thirty five directly into a black panel fender amp, nothing in between. Can I take that? Like bet? that's is there, is there a way that yes, I can take that yes, bet right I'll now? I'll take that bet. I'll take that That's bet. so specific. There's no way that that could be right. <laughs> well, actually, you brought up something good, Phil. I just want to jump in and say that I was surprised at myself that when I was listening actively to the music, the instrument I tuned into was the drums. I thought that yeah, was the most sure. interesting thing going on. And that was just surprising for me. As a guitar player, I'm usually either listening to the guitar or the bass, which is sort of like guitar but not as good. <laughs> I think Tom and I can actually align on this. <laughs> yeah, seriously. No, I, no, I think no. that the drums are <laughs> super forward in this. Like, I don't know if that was like a conscious choice, but I think the way the way the drums kind of hang back that really I mean, obviously drums drive every song, but the it's almost like like the later kind of incarnations of funk. It always was about like finish on the one, the one, the one, the one. Like there's that Bootsy video where he talks about that. But I feel like this was a little bit more like laid back and lets the bass hit the one but it it's it's like squirrely yet still tight in a way that they they really like mixed it forward um in a way that i don't think drums often are are you know deployed that way you know what i would really like to to have been a, a party to is uh when they picked the names for the songs, like, what, did they just <laughs> like grab Scrabble tiles or something like that? And be like, oh, there we go. We're gonna call this one Pungy or Poongy. What? Speaking yeah. of which, let's spin up Pungy yeah. real quick.
love this. So like I, <laughs> I having spent most of my twenties in a van driving to and from gigs with musicians who were way better than me that I had no business. Was it a van down by the with. river? <laughs> <laughs> uh, just drummers and bass players, and to hear them talk about the meters and how these guys kind of they didn't invent pocket, but it introduced a generation and probably multiple generations of drummers and bass players to that pocket. You know, it's almost un- undefinable if that's a word, but like when you hear it, you know what it is. And that for me, the fact that these guys, you know, doing what they do, I, I dig it. Adam, this is right in your wheelhouse, by the way, even though there's no vocals, even though this isn't slathered in vocal harmony, perfectly yeah. in time, perfectly in tune and just has like, it doesn't have, it's like the lack of urgency is hypnotic, you know? And that's yeah. what's super cool. Everything else is so urgent always, right? Like, I, I defy you to <laughs> listen to this and then not friggin' bounce your head with a stink yeah, face. it's I cool. Mean, it's, like, cool. It's, it's definitely yeah. extremely head bobby. And, but I think it speaks to, you know, Rob, you kind of started the, the conversation around the idea of, like, background music, which, you know, normally I think could, could be taken as a little bit of a slight, but I, I think... In, in this sense, I, I think it actually serves serves it really well where and it speaks to them being sort of a house band. Like that's kind of how they got their their footing where they, it's it's like no one person is really the star of the show here. Like we're all here as as sidemen. And so um, but yeah, it's it's funny. There There is one thing I'll say about um, uh, at least the last song, Look at Pie Pie. There. <laughs> Their songs only have two parts. I don't even know if there's like such thing as a bridge or anything. It's just basically A, B, A, B, A, B. Groove one, groove There was two, one right. point where I will say, as much as I love this band, and like two and a half minutes in, I was like, this song is a little long. And I was like, oh shit, it's only been like two, <laughs> two minutes and 15 seconds. <laughs> I definitely found myself, uh, uh, you know, feeling that a little bit. Um, and again, it's it's... I feel like the experience of seeing them live would have been amazing. Like that would have been a great show to go see live. Um, and it, it might've just been that I was in the, the wrong headspace to listen to it after like having done my deep indigo girls dive. And I was just like, all right. Let's just, <laughs> you know. Well, Very I think they're yeah, like wiping some tears off of my eyes. Like, all right, what's going on next? <laughs> Oregon funk. Yeah. How about that? Yeah. I didn't, just to be clear, I didn't mean the background music as a, as a slight. That's not how I meant it. I I simply meant that every music has a has its moment, sort of, and oh my in, God. in my Did brain. You say every music has its moment, Rob. <laughs> <laughs> right. I'm just clarifying. I didn't see that as a slight. I'll definitely spin the record again, but I will probably play one of my instruments to it, whether it be drums, piano, or guitar, and and try to learn something about rhythm from it, is which is kind of what Adam was saying. Yeah, it's it's funny. Just on, on sort of a side note about playing along with the instrument, this was the first record that I ever like played along to. Even though I'd been playing bass for you know a number of years before that, I had a, a bass teacher who was basically like, "Hey, if you want to like learn funk, if you want to play funk, just play along to this." And for the first few songs, I was like, "This really isn't anything. It's just kind of like do 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 do." But it, I definitely think it helped reinforce a lot of that that pocket that you mentioned, Adam. Oh, yeah, patience is definitely the watchword for this band in general. Like, it's patient music. Totally. All right, so what do you think? Votes on this, or, or have we established that at this point? Yeah, I'm in on this one. I'm game. 
yeah, I'm going to play an instrument along to it for sure. You know, I wasn't sold on it until Rob mentioned playing an instrument along to it, and I'm probably going to do that tonight, so I'm down. And it's so hard panned. All you have to do is just <laughs> unplug one speaker, and then you're the drummer, and there's like a screaming. Or you can do vocals to it, too. From the other room. <clears throat> there you go. <clears throat> yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Working by Anthony Kiedis. You know, that would actually be a re- it would be really hilarious to take a meters record, record all vocals over it, release it as a new record, and then just wait to get sued. Like, <laughs> <laughs> it's, like, it's like a publicity stunt, right? Do, do it all in the style of the Indigo Girls, folks. <laughs> Perfect. Perfect. Staggered harmonies. If the Indigo Girls were a rap band, how can we do that? <laughs> <laughs> They'd be girls with a Z, the Indigo Girls. <laughs> All right, moving right along, Phil. I think you have an album for us. Yeah, so I've got the last one of the cohort here for the evening. Uh, It is Dr. Dog's Easy Beat. I actually had to double check that uh, I had to double check the release date of Easy Beat versus the release date of the book, which I believe is 2010, Uh, or at least that's what the internet showed me on a cursory uh, pass. So I don't actually want to throw. Uh, 1001 records to listen to before you die under the bus because this would have been relatively underground released in I believe 2004 or was it 2006 Easy Beat was the breakthrough record of Dr. Dog which is a Philly band one of my favorite bands of the last I don't know 15 to 20 years yeah Easy Beat came out in 2004 so it was actually their third release they had put out two other incredibly DIY uh, home recording releases, one called The Psychedelic Swamp, um, and the other, what was the other one? Oh, Toothbrush. Toothbrush is somewhere between Totally Weird and Experimental and Easy Beat, which in my opinion is sort of like, uh, I would say Easy Beat is like the height of DIY recording. It is like DIY doing in the home bedroom mastery. Um, so, yeah, Dr. Dogger band out of Philly. They actually, uh, Tom, in doing the research, I actually found out that we played a show, likely with Toby from Dr. Dog. The last General Electric show was with a, yeah. at East End Cafe with a band called yeah. Double Horse. We got double booked. Do you recall this? Oh, because yeah. For some reason. Do you remember this at all? Or were you drinking too much? I mean, yes, but. Um, uh, all I remember yes, is this band, double, this, double, this band Double Horse played. We, we sort of figured it out on the fly. They were fantastic. We gave them half the money from the door and they just thought we were the nicest guys in the world because I they had brought literally no one yeah. there from like Philly, right? And we brought so, like seven people, so clearly we were at the poll. No, no, it was our last, we had pr- built it. Half of whom were on this call right now. Show, so, so there were actually people there for that one. First show, last show, packed. Everything in between, not so much. So, um, I mean, that's pretty much it. I think what I've always loved about Dr. Dog is that instead of sort of steering clear of their influences, the very obvious influences and, uh, and, and, and likenesses to the Beatles, the Beach Boys, the band, it's very apparent in their sound. I think what's cool about Dr. Dog is they sort of steer into the skid and own it and sort of make it their own rather than trying to like put a little, a little, little, little English on it and pretend it's something else. Pretend like, oh, that isn't Strawberry Fields. That's my song. No, no, that's Strawberry Fields. It's Raspberry Pastures. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, Raspberry Pastures is Strawberry Fields. So that, I mean, this is literally, I mean, I would actually say this is one of the top five albums in the world for me. 
I, I literally cannot listen to this enough. Uh, so I chose two songs off the record. I chose Say Something, which was the song that really hooked me on Dr. Dog. Uh, so let's, let's, let's rip that one and then we can, we can chat about it. Kick it to Rob, alphabetical order, man. PR. I'm gonna go to you. You're gonna go to me. All right, great. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. Listen, I remember uh, being in Newark, late college, and getting this album, and it was just a CD that just said "Burn this CD," (laughs) and like, yeah, listening to it and being like, "Oh, damn!" Like, where has this sound been? Um, It had a classic feel to it. It had like a modern feel to it. And I agree. This was the song that first jumped out to me as um you know that crescendo at the end to the say something whoa that was really good it had a good build good um structure to it i love the harmonies i like the fact that the drums sound like they recorded in a fucking tin shack um it it works you know there are some underproduced elements for sure but yeah i agree it works well it's like and not to give (laughs) not to give them too much praise here but like it almost has like that sort of like uh you know enter the 36 chambers wu-tang uh feel to it where it's like they're like we can't be clean so we decided to go really dirty on our production value it's like we knew clean wasn't an option like so let's just again to use the the tin shack plug in yeah um or just really crappy microphones on a really crappy drum set in a really crappy room. And it works. Again, if they were trying to do something clean, it would not have worked. But the fact that they do have this sort of like working man lo-fi sensibility to them, I, I feel like it works There's really actually well. a lot of dig in, Tom, on like the production of this record. It was, it was written up in tape op. And I actually received like kind of a lot of attention for its production value. Um, and there are only two microphones uh, used on this album. One is a SM57, <laughs> which okay. is used on pretty much every amplifier and in most cases, uh, you know, drum sets, etc. Like drum sets that are recorded with one SM57 and one Neumann, I believe it's like an AU46 or whatever. It's like the Neumann microphone, the one that's so on my, all the Beatles my- records and everything. My question would be, did they run every instrument through a tube screamer or just Ooh. the final output? Okay. So great, great question. Because that, that's the only thing. So like, this album I, is recorded on a Tascam 388. Oh, my God. Which is essentially like a Tascam 388 hold is I, like. Hold on. I still have second child. PTSD from that. <laughs> is this the one that Phil claimed you could play as an instrument? This is the have played it as oh. an instrument. Thank you. This is the band that launched a thousand ships for us, you know, as a friend group, right? Like this was the mission statement for the chop. I feel like this fueled us in a lot of good ways to form a band and 
to have fun, but it also fueled us in a lot of poor directions, like buying that crappy Tascam 388 and and fighting with it nonstop for hours at a time. Do you still you have know, that, Phil? That pa- yeah, man, I bought that back off the band when I left the West Coast. That thing is like quadrupled in value since then, True. which one sadly is like one of my best financial moves since leaving the West Coast. So <laughs> yeah, but if you could really get that like 600 pound thing out of your attic at any point, that's to sell it, that's going to be a problem. <laughs> oh, it's never an retirement tape machine. <laughs> let's, just, let's just see. A Tascam 3. We never, we never figured out how to use that well, thing. What was the. Uh, Free. $3,800 for a thing, Tascam uh, 388? I'm going to sell that thing tonight. That's the thing uh, Tim Green from Louder Studios always used to say. <laughs> it has the word scam in the name. You should have been able to figure it out. <laughs> <laughs> oh, shit. That was, that, was, that was a good one. I hadn't heard that one. That was good. That was good. Phil's worldview right, so is keep, collapsing before her. Let's keep, yeah, you guys can all eat shit. I'm going to go hang out. I got, I got a date. With a Tascam 388. Okay. <laughs> Wait, I thought you were hanging out with Tom tonight at the bar. <laughs> I, I probably am. Tom is also a Tascam 388. I have amongst many fond memories of Dr. Dog and us. I have a picture where one time me and Phil, and I think Alan might have been there, we were at the Dr. Dog studio recording something. And you happened upon, you went in some locked room or something, you found a Tascam 388, assuming that it was, in fact, the Tascam 388. And I took a, I have a photo of you standing next to it. And the joy on your face, I've never seen, I've been to your wedding, I've seen you after the birth of your children, I've never seen anything like this. Smile. Yes, yes. I know the photo you're talking about. I think, yeah, I might have to get a t-shirt with that photo on it. All right, so I mean, Rob, did you already chime in on this record? Am I am I having am I in some kind of fugue state here, or we only touch Tom? I mean, I've been talking, so listen. I think <laughs> I agree. It's great. I sometimes describe this to other people. Other people who love records know what it know what this means. But it was sort of our band, our being our friend group, meaning that we felt ownership over them. We sort of watched them rise. They were semi-local. We met them and chatted with them at various times, and we sort of went to see them at many successively larger and larger venues over their career. And, you know, when you do stuff like that, you feel like you feel this connection to the band. Right. Mm -hmm. So yeah, this record was extremely important to me as well. To me, I think other than the lo-fi aesthetic and the unbridled pop songwriting aesthetic, which is great. I think it really cemented in my mind, this kind of loose tight vibe that we always strove in our various bands or did for a while strove in our various bands to achieve. That's what I like about them. And yeah, like I said, and then maybe there's other ways you could describe the genre that they are, but I think in a lot of ways it created this record created a mission statement for our band in our twenties, the chop, which is to say that they were sort of soulful and earnest, but had harmonies both on voice and guitar, but then also crunchy notes which I think totally. these songs display. So, and then that last element of sing-alongs, which is getting yeah. the audience involved. To me, like so that, that was the blueprint for everything we thought was cool about music in our 20s. That's a perfect segue. So I want to listen to Wake Up real quick, the last track on the record, and then it, we'll, let's get some, some opinions from Adam and Alan. One thing I want to add, though, is the reason I picked Say Something and Wake Up is because I also think the first track on this record is possibly the best track on the record. So I felt like Say Something's the one that got me into it. Wake Up is like, I, I feel like a Dr. Dog anthem. So it feels like, you know, I can, I can tease someone into listening to track two if they're, if they're expecting both of these songs, right, when they come in. So let's roll Wake Up and then we'll, we'll, come, we'll come back and get Alan. 
I just laid there And I was born at the scene of a crime Every witness Well, he was dead and down So while we were listening to that track, guys, I remembered uh, one really hilarious. Uh, this this was at a Dr. Dog show. This might have been like Dr. Dog and Cold War Kids, I want to say, Rob. Anyway, I walked into the show with you, and um, we had smoked a lot of marijuana uh, before we entered. Like, a lot. It was a very poor choice. Mm. And uh, Story checks out, Phil. Yeah. And I remember, I don't remember the exact details, but you walked up to like the merch table and there was some guy there who was working for the band. He was like, oh yeah, I'm like the tour manager. And you're like, oh cool, I'm in a band. This is our CD. We're called The Chop. And without hesitation, he was like constantly high on pot. <laughs> <laughs> and then I probably like walked away like I didn't know you while you probably stood there like, like, like flabbergasted, you know? But yes, so he really zinged you and me in that moment. That was a really... That was a memorable I, moment. Wait, it who in Dr. Even, Dog said that? Oh, no, like the gut merch booth guy. Well, no, no, hold, no, no, hold on, hold on. I have a slight <laughs> amendment to that story. That's mostly correct. But what happened there was that I like wrote them on MySpace, and I was the merch guy. Oh, and that guy was, I think, the record label guy. And he was talking, and I felt so. I felt even more paranoid when he said that. Like he was calling me out. Like I shouldn't be there. Like I was going to lose my job. In quotes. <laughs> yeah. So. Oh, all right, Adam. So you're you're the odd man out here. I imagine you're the one who probably yeah. hasn't heard this record as much, even though I probably tried to force feed it to you somewhere along the way. What were your feelings? <laughs> so uh, say something right off the bat. I love the chord progressions. Great guitar work. Uh, fantastic harmonies. Uh, coming out of the chorus, there was this chord that gave it a lot of tension, mm -hmm. and then it like released back into the verse, which I thought was very cool. Uh, wake up. Same thing, great chord progression. Uh, I, the Farfisa organ that they got going on in the background was was kind of cool. My overall complaint was that it's so overdriven. I know they're going for a sound, but it I feel like it took away from clarity that could have added where it's like, oh, if they had just dialed the gain down a hair, I'd be like, oh, he hit that note, or that guitar sounds more lush, but like. If you were to, if I was to listen to these two tunes, and if you tell me every song on the album sounds like that overdriven, super gain, Donald Fagan would have held, he hung himself because it's so distorted. <laughs> I, I, I might have a hard time getting through that, um, but I'm still gonna go listen to it because yes, uh, uh, Phil, you've been telling me about these guys for years. Uh, this so. is this is the greatest shit ever. <laughs> Maybe that before. might be high. That might so, be high praise. Odd man out. <laughs> yeah. So, so that's, uh, Alan, Alan, give it, give it, give it to me. No, I mean, not much to add here. I love Dr. Dog. I'm, I'm like everyone else on this call. Uh, definitely an all-time band. My my prediction is they will play Wake Up as their final song on that New Year's show in Philly. Sure. They're wrapping up their touring career, I guess, this year. I'll probably get divorced buying tickets to that on the black market, but it'll be worth it. Um, 
Sell that task cam. Go, <laughs> go to Phil's house. Rob him. <laughs> Why is there some overweight bearded man crawling into the into yeah, my you basement? You could totally trade that task cam for a New Year's ticket. Someone would love to do that deal. <laughs> It'd probably be Toby. He's like, yeah, I'll take that thing. <laughs> no, I mean, always, kick, always use another one. <laughs> Dr. Dog's great. I one more um, feather in their cap is that Pitchfork hates them for some irrational reason. If you go look at Pitchfork's reviews of them, they are all like savage, and I do not understand why. And it makes Pitchfork me like sucks. them even more because fuck Pitchfork. Exactly. Um, Pitchfork is so pretentious, stupid. Also, Toby's uh, child goes to school with my son Reed and and Phil's son, thus ruining my dreams of being like the best bass playing dad at this elementary school, which, <laughs> you know, is, is a little bit heartbreaking. But yeah, Dr. Dog's in. Can't, can't really add much. I more have here. a very distinct memory of seeing them uh, at Cafe du Nord in San Francisco. So like all the way across the, the coast. And there was a bunch of us Delaware kids there, like singing along to their songs in the front row. And I remember them being a little flabbergasted because it wasn't that big of a show. I mean, like, how the hell do you know, like, all of the words to our songs? They were the opening band, too. Yeah, they were not, like, the the draw of the night. And I I bought, like, 12 tickets to that show for a bunch of, like, work co-workers. (laughs) I guess, if they're co-workers, they're work co-workers. (laughs) (laughs) Department of Redundancy Department. Band of our life there. Well done, gentlemen. I think that's all the records we had planned to discuss today. That's five recommendations to put back on this dang list since we've kicked so many records off. Wait, am I the only and one whose record didn't make the list for back on? It was the votes from you guys because I feel like yeah, uh, I, no, I, no. I, I, we I were voting on Indigo Girls a passive. Okay, like, hold okay. on. I let me clarify. We were not. I I purposely was not voting on that. I think you all were just these records. On whether have, or not you wanted to listen to it again. Yeah, correct. No, yeah, and then that is different. It's definitely different. Yeah, yeah. Either way, you guys are all philistines. We all the best. <laughs> Basically, whenever we bring Robert Dimery on as a, as our first guest, we're gonna have to grill the bejesus out of him. <laughs> cool. So for once, we've given you five recommendations to listen to. Do you think those are good recommendations? Do you think we're all morons? I'm sure it's both. Please <laughs> drop us an email at 1001 album complaints at Gmail. Check out the Spotify playlist that'll highlight these tracks we just mentioned, as well as anything else we mentioned and chatted about on the show. And we're excited to do more of these because we do think there are a lot of glaring omissions, things that need to be added back to the 1001 albums you must hear before you die. As we kick more albums off, we will make more recommendations of what you actually should be spending your time listening two so any more comments before we close it out boys i think weird al probably sold more albums than everybody else that you guys mentioned i'm just gonna point that one out (laughs) there's no bitterness here on this call (laughs) i definitely think it's a it's a two-horse race between harry belafonte and weird al (laughs) i think weird al's got a couple of albums that went platinum so you know just throwing that out there Harry Belafonte is the first human being to sell one million records. I think I, that's, listen, I'm not saying I don't love Harry Belafonte. I'm on board with him. Just, just to put everything in perspective, I just took a quick glance at next week's record, Synchronicity by the Police. Just, you know, just glancing at it. Every breath you take has three hundred or 938 million listens. It's closing in on a billion. I wonder how many of those people were like, this isn't the Puff Daddy song. What's yeah. going on? <laughs> yeah, where's the ditty? Yes. Excellent. Well, 
we are going to close it out here. It's been exciting. And for 1001 Album Complaints, I have been Rob. I am Tom. Alan. I'm Adam. And I'm Phil. Boosh.